Hello and welcome back to another episode of Talking Terror, brought to you by the Terrorism and Extremism Research Centre here at the University of East London. I'm John Morrison. Today's podcast was recorded on May 1st, 2018 at approximately 1.45 London time. As always, if you want to hear anything we do here at the Terrorism and Extremism Research Centre, be sure to follow us on Twitter at T-E-R-C-U-E-L. And if you want to tell us what you think, only good, good things obviously, about this podcast, be sure to tweet at us with the hashtag TalkingTerror. I annoy a lot of our future guests by trying to get them on. I'm contacting them again and again and again. But today's guest is a person I've probably annoyed the most, mainly because he just works down the corridor from me. So every time I'm, I bump into him there, Aaron, you have to come on the, on the podcast. So at last, with one of our last episodes of this first series, I've got him on. So it's my great pleasure to uh, welcome on and to have forced on Aaron, Dr. Aaron Winters, Aaron Winter, onto today's podcast. Aaron holds a DPhil from Sussex, where his dissertation was on the far right in post-civil rights America. He is a senior lecturer here in criminology and criminal justice here at UEL and is also a, a Terrorism and Extremism Research Centre Research Fellow. His research is on right-wing extremism and terrorism, hate groups and hate crime, and racist and racialized violence. He's been interviewed by the BBC, CBC, LBC, all the C's, uh, the, the Times, The Telegraph, Vice, and Gara, and now he can list Talking Terror onto put Talking Terror onto that list. He is co-editor of Discourses and Practices of Terrorism, Interrogating Terror, published in 2010, New Challenges, for the EU Internal Security Strategy, published in 2013, and Reflexivity in Criminological Research Experiences with the Powerful and the Powerless, published in 2014. His most recent article is Articulations of Islamophobia from the Extreme to the Mainstream in Ethnic and Racial Studies, co-authored by Orléans Mondain, uh, who will be talking about that that, uh, uh, that article later on in today's episode. He has currently co-edited the book, recently co-edited the book, Historical Perspectives on Organised Crime and Terrorism, with myself, Andrew Silk and James Windle, and researching the far-right theory, method, practice, uh, as well uh, as the Manchester University Press series, Racism, Resistance and Social Change. He is also part of the ASRC project, Racism and Political Mobilisation, and London Scholars Project, Step Up to Stop Hate. And Aaron is also a trustee of the British Sociological Association. Aaron, welcome on today's podcast. Thank you, John. Thank you for the many invitations. No problem, no problem. That last one of them worked. Um, so you've—I don't know if I've ever asked you this question. I've asked everyone, uh, everyone on the podcast this, but I see you the whole time, and I've never asked you. How did you actually get into this area of research? I thought you'd eventually ask. <laughs> yeah, I was saving it <laughs> I, for today. I, I, did, I didn't expect it to be recorded, but. Um, <laughs> How did I get into it? Um, it's a long and uh, winding road. That's why we're here. Um, I think uh, some of this will come out later, but I think um, my interest really is in the intersection of racism and violence. And I think um, the interest in that started f- uh, as a young, young man. Um, Which you still are, of course. Yes, yes, I am. Um, only because this is only on audio. Um, <laughs> And it, 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 it's a product of sort of my experiences, sort of awareness about certain issues in the, in the social world. Um, but I think um, in terms of my, my scholarship, um, I, I went to university 
wanting to, wanted studying something about racism. And I went through several, several disciplines before I sort of found the ones I wanted, uh, starting initially in political science, um, which I thought was sort of too state oriented, which I think we'll, we'll come around to when we talk about counterterrorism. Um, moving to philosophy and the as abstract as I possibly could go and finally ending up in sociology and then criminology. Um, and I think it, on one hand it came about from reading certain important works on the subject, uh, particularly about the African-American experience and lynching, the Ku Klux Klan. Um, and I had an interest in these issues. I don't know if you want me to go far, far yeah, back. Um, but I think, I think, well, certain important things in my life uh, would, have, um, would have influenced this. One being, um, my, I'm the grandchild of Holocaust survivors and um, the idea of sort of racist and racialized violence, both from the state and civil society, were something that I sort of grew up knowing about and curious about and wanting to understand more about. Um, and then if you sort of, I guess, skip over many, many years, as a teenager, I found myself in a... Uh, and sort of, just as I was old enough to go downtown, mm. I found myself in the midst of a skinhead revival downtown. And I, I hung out with a very mixed group uh, with certain tastes in music that led to certain, you know, conflicts and tensions. And um, these were things that I really, really wanted to s understand. Mm -hmm. And I guess the reason I, I sort of, the first academic I've, book I ever picked up, and I didn't include it in my list because it's not about terrorism, but was... Uh, Stanley Cohen's Folk Devils and Moral Panics, Mods and Rockers, mm -hmm. and Dick Hebdige's uh, subculture. Try to understand sort of youth subcultures around race and racism. Um, but I, I sort of, I guess I moved out of this towards much more political uh, sort of political movements and, and things such as that. And did those early readings, did they uh, ring home to you about what you were experiencing, what you were seeing, or did you feel that there was, there was something missing? Um, I think in some cases, interestingly, because I didn't, I didn't pursue the subcultural line mm -hmm. um, that I read in, in Cohen and Heftage, but um, I felt a lot of the work in politics, for example, was very detached mm -hmm. and sterile. I found, I found that it was it dealt with problems, social problems, and complex social problems that um, the state was in charge of managing mm -hmm. as opposed to having a role in fermenting it. Uh, fermenting it because of either neglect or policies or anything like that. And so I felt there was something missing. And I think I was searching all along for something that would bring, I guess, the subcultural more sociological, criminological work and the political science together. And with, by being um, the grandchild of Holocaust survivors, was this, did, do you feel that this affected, uh, like was this an as was this a firm identifier for you growing up? And do you feel that this, um, gave you a different perspective on how you analyzed um, the topic that you had chosen to, to, to research, to study? 
I mean, it's, it's a really good question. I mean, in a sense, I could say that it, it, it what drew me to towards certain themes, mm. but I, I also recognize that people don't necessarily have that experience of different ones that are drawn towards similar or overlapping themes. Um, I do. I think it's, it's something that, um, and I think it's something that informs even much more my even current research mm. where I really, I wanted to understand how you, how racism functioned on many levels from the mainstream to the extreme from the, on the state level to the everyday. Mm -hmm. Um, and I think that really, that really drew me towards it. One thing I, I, I didn't really do was I didn't really focus on the experience okay. of, of, um, of victimization. Mm -hmm. Although my work has tended to be victim centric mm -hmm. or victim centered, sorry. Um, particularly my, my more recent hate crimes work. Um, and that gave me a real curiosity about these experiences and how, how they're understood. Okay. Um, it's also made me a bit more resistant to kind of, you know, hear out Nazis, mm -hmm. give them a platform to which they can explain their ideas. And this has been a, a methodological negotiation for me as well. Yeah, it must have been it must have been a tricky a tricky negotiation for you to take part in by, with yourself, like to to be in, to make that decision to do that. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I do see my work as being inherently. Uh, we can get into this issue of bias and <laughs> objectivity. Um, I do see my work as as anti-racist and anti-fascist. Mm -hmm. um, I do analyze the iterations, the discourses, the narratives, the stories that the far right tells mm -hmm. uh, using primarily their ephemera. Mm -hmm. um, but I don't, um, if there were questions raised early on during my PhD about what type of method I would be using, mm -hmm. would I be doing participant observation? Yeah. Would I go meet these people? And I sort of, I guess it was a bit of a a quip, but I said it was interesting because I had talked to other people who had done this. Mm. And one, one person who uh, had told me that they had gone on a uh, hunting trip with a militia. And I, I, I was sort of trying to imagine myself in such a position as a, uh, you know, these are armed anti-Semites. I'm a unarmed Jewish person. <laughs> I was saying it just seems wrong to be in the forest alone. Um, but I, but I also, one of the things that, and, and, and I don't know, I'm being slightly sort of sarcastic about it, but one of the things I really wanted to understand, and this gets into the historical work that I'm mm -hmm. doing is I want to understand how they've, these groups have changed over time, mm. how they, not just how they organize, but how they identify themselves, construct their identities, how they might represent other groups, mm. their target groups primarily. And I, I also felt, um, in addition to being sort of, uh, be having a slight issue with participant observation in this case, uh, or going to live on a compound for a while. Um, I also felt that, that nothing could be as much of a sort of like a document objectivity of your, your, your method, more of a control than tracing articulations within their ephemera, their literature over a long period of time and doing content analysis and mapping those changes. So I felt like in a sort of personal and political way, I came around to my, to my method, mm. um, which has been, um, provided material for, 
for a long time in that way. And like we're going to get on to now in a second the the pieces that have, have most influenced your career outside of the ones that have already been mentioned. But touching on that point, have you found it? Have you found it tricky to get get hold of this ephemera then, or uh, what way do you, what what way do you find uh, find the the most appropriate sample of of statements, etc. I mean, and it's a tricky one because I'm um, I'm currently writing a piece for a talk about my methodology. Mm. Um, it was difficult, and I think that partly I had started the PhD in 1999, and um, the internet is not where it is now. Um, but I had done um, a survey of archives, mm-hmm. and the, the archive, the the sort of the archives of far right material is very interesting and patchy. You have activist archives, you have collectors, you have uh, monitoring groups and civil rights groups. Mm. Um, I use several archives, including here. There's some great archives in this country. Um, there's the Searchlight Archive, which I didn't use for the PhD. Mm. Uh, um, but there's the uh, Parks Archive at Southampton, uh, the, anti- the Jewish and anti-Semitism archive. Um, and I used three primarily. Um, I used, and this was part of certain my sort of field work, um, one, I, I spent some time at the Southern Poverty Law Center, yeah. um, who were not, have not only been in a really important um, organization fighting hate, but also an incredibly great resource. Mm. Uh, even if you don't go into their archives, the material they, they produce. Um, and I spent some time there um, doing archive research and looking particularly at the material of uh, Aryan Nations, uh, Posse Comitatus and National Alliance, mm-hmm. one of, sort of the the fifth fifth era nineteen eighties and groups. Um, I also went to the University of Georgia at Athens right wing um, collection mm-hmm. and looked at more historical clan material, and this was allowing me to look at them at the changes in both ideologies, discourses, and articulations, but also um, how they how they sort of how the groups themselves would have changed over time. And then I spent some time at in uh, Washington, mm-hmm. as uh, hosted by George Washington University American Studies Department, um, at the Library of Congress, uh, looking at all the legal cases, the far right legal cases through the eighties and nineties. And then I spent some time at the George Washington University, uh, sort of government documents, and this is where I spent a lot of time reading um, government. Uh, Senate subcommittee hearings into the Oklahoma City bombing, mm. uh, Waco, Ruby Ridge, all of these kinds of things, and the Ku Klux Klan in the 1960s. And do you have any advice for anyone who's considering using similar archives and using similar resources? Any, what, what would be the one piece of advice you'd give them? Oh, wow. Um, <laughs> um, I'll give, I'll give the... the there's, I have several pieces of advice. I mean, one is it's it's a good idea to really map out who holds what. Yeah. Um, at the time, it was it started off for me as a bit of a fishing expedition, and it, it became much more kind of honed and rigorous as time went on. Mm-hmm. And I wish that I had the lessons I learned by the end at the beginning. Yeah. Um, so it's about doing the research and who holds what. I guess the second one is funding. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and the third one uh, was an interesting one because. I was doing, I started my, uh, my research in September, 1999. 
and I was about to do my field work in 2001. And it's an interesting time to want to travel to the United States and carry around boxes of extremist material. Yeah. That said, I didn't get stopped. <laughs> um, but uh, security, I, I spent time in Washington on the first, first anniversary of 9-11. Um, like six months after 9-11, I was in Alabama and Georgia mm. uh, researching far-right extremism. Um, and it was a uh, timing is everything. <laughs> yeah. uh, and I, the reason I say that is also because at that time where there might have been a lot of interest in the type of work I was doing post-Oklahoma City. Mm -hmm. And that's really what informed it. I wanted to kind of work backwards from that event, which I guess brings us back to terrorism. 9-11 mm. occurs and people don't seem to want to know that there's a, a, a white Christian domestic terrorism problem. Yeah. Because these were, the, these were the subjects who were being rallied towards the patriotic kind of defense against Muslims. And we still see that today. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 And we'll, we'll get onto that in a bit. I suppose as well, that, that point of knowing who has what, it's also knowing how they, uh, how they sample what they, how they yeah. get what they give and therefore understanding what might be missing from, from certain archives. Absolutely. Well. Absolutely. Yeah. And in fact, and a lot of my material doesn't have dates. Yeah. Uh, there was a, a long period of time where I was looking at the order of things where gaps might be, but also what news was being reported on. Yeah. And it's interesting with the far right, because at the time they were also producing stuff and I would see the same article come out, what, maybe five years later. Yeah. Um, because, you know, the Jewish conspiracy or the, you know, was, was always good as, you know, as trans historical. Hmm. Um, but yeah, so it, it is, that's a really difficult one. It was a lot of, it was tedious, but it was fun detective work. Yeah. Yeah, no, it is. So, you, you mentioned earlier on about um, pieces on moral panics influencing you and subcultures. But you, 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 when picking these, these influential pieces, I know from chatting to you that you wanted them more focused on, on terrorism. Um, and the first piece you pick is Jesse Daniels' piece, White Lies, Race, Class, Gender and Sexuality in White Supremacist Discourse. Could you tell our listeners a bit about this and how this has influenced your research? No, of, of course, of course. I mean, one of the things that's worth noting, and I mean, we can, we can discuss this as we go, um, is that my interest in even terrorism mm. is largely about racism. Yeah. I'm very much interested in the way in, in both racist violence and mm. racist terror, but also the way in which discourses about terrorism racialize, are, 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 are targeted towards, say, Muslims, for example, mm. and racial, racialized Muslims. So there's a, a racist discourse which is just predicated on on terror anti-terrorism mm -hmm. and there's also the racist violence of the clan Aryan nations groups such as that uh national combat 18 here um and so uh, jesse daniel's book i think came in 1997 which is just before my my phd mm. and i found it fascinating because this was a book that actually focused on extremists mm. um with a focus on the intersection of not of race, gender, sexuality, and class. And it was looking at how social categories and ways of organizing uh, identity and power were articulated in, these, in this material. Um, and by material, what it's really important to note is this is also where I really found, I felt I found my kind of, my methodological 
calling as well as my focus because she dealt with um, an incredibly like systematic analysis of ephemera material from various organizations, including uh, uh, White Aryan Resistance, uh, were quite big at the time. Um, and the way in which she looked at the way in which race, gender, class, and sexuality were articulated and constructed mm. within both written and visual material and in ways that they would construct a threat to what effectively would be white, Christian, straight, or cis men. Mm -hmm. um, now, I thought that was really, really interesting and important. And what the second thing that she did that I, I just felt was really impressive was she looked at this as extremist groups, mm -hmm. far right, white supremacists, the, the sort of the, the fringe of American society. But she made very clear by focusing on these sites that these have an incredible overlap to the mainstream discourses in the 1980s, for example, about, say, the Reagan's uh, black welfare queen. And there's similarities in the construction. Now, some of them don't code their racism as well. Okay. Um, but what, what, what do you mean by that? Um, the term welfare queen mm -hmm. gets got thrown around by, by Reagan. Mm -hmm. And it was the sort of the, the popular demon. Okay. The black single mother who lived off the system. Um, whose, whose partner was not criminalized, but in prison, you know, a criminal. And the way in which that pathologized both sort of blackness and the black family. And in, in a lot of ways reaffirmed racial and gendered power in society. Um, obviously with white Aryan resistance, you know, or a neo-Nazi organization, they're not going to say the welfare queen and leave it at that so people can understand what they mean. Mm -hmm they're going to outright have a extremely extreme caricature. They're going to use certain terms. They're going to use certain signifiers of racism mm -hmm. in it. They're not going to talk about, so for example, you had, uh, it was the same time you had Pat Buchanan, mm. the paleo conservatives talking about, you know, Northern elites, you know, the, the, the money, the money changers, the mm. money lenders. I mean, it, people who, who know about anti-Semitism know it, knew what he meant. Um, you know, a neo-Nazi organization isn't going to be so subtle. And I'm not saying he was subtle, don't get me wrong. Um, but I mean, we're in an era now where everyone's saying, you know what George Soros is up to. So we're having that again. Um, you know, plausible deniability. Yeah. Uh, and, and I think, you know, the, you know, a white Aryan resistance or, or organizations such as that are basically going to, or National Alliance, are going to have a picture of a stereotype Jew counting money. Oh, okay. They're not, you know, I mean, they're not going to do that. But, but at the same time, the message is the same. Yeah. The, the, the figures of who has power, who's perceived to have power, and whose power they threaten is the same. And I think that is partly what I also I took away from, from Daniels, and which informs my work to this day, is the way in which the far right has always constructed itself, at least post-60s, post-civil rights, as having lost power. White people have lost power. Men have lost power. And that really emerged in the 1970s, 1670s with feminism. And what they do is they construct themselves as victims. And that victim, uh, that, that 
that still reaffirms power. It reaffirms ra the racial, gendered, and sexual power in society, which is still predominantly, you know, it's not, it's not black women who are in charge. Um, and so I was found that very interesting in the way in which extremists reaffirm power, which they claim to have lost as their rationale for mobilization. And I think we really saw this under Trump with Brexit. Mm -hmm. And we've really seen that mobilization of victimization to reaffirm power. And it's so what you're what you're saying there with with Trump and Brexit, it's been it's been seen in mainstream politics as yes. well as as, um, as as well as on the fringes, and it's it, it makes it it's it's a it, it's sort of legitimizing it in a, in a certain way as well, and that sort of leads us on to the next book that you you put, picked up uh, or the next piece you picked up, uh, Chip Burlett and, and Matthew Lyons' piece, right wing uh, populism in America too close for comfort. So yes. what, what was it that, what did you get from this well, that, um, that helped you uh, in your understanding? I mean, it's quite interesting just to, to, to bridge the two. Um, the idea of victimization, one of the things that, that occurs to me is historically, and this, is, this will get us on to obviously um, backfire, the Chalmers mm. book, is historically the far right has portrayed themselves as under threat. Whiteness, is under th whiteness and masculinity is under threat. Um, and mobilized, but from a position of power. What happens in the post-civil rights era, which is the focus of my work, mm. is that they stop even claiming to have any power. It's absolute victimization. And what Burleigh's and Lyon's book, um, I have to say, is, is it's, it's a favorite of mine. I mean, it, it's an incredibly large historical overview of right-wing populism in America. Mm -hmm. And um, it goes from sort of the early settler settlement kind of... Um, sort of Jacksonianism to millennial movements or millenarian movements mm. on the eve of the apocalypse. Well, end of the century. But <laughs> <laughs> uh, for non-far right speak. Um, and they look at the way in which certain constructions of politics, the people versus the elites, mm -hmm. the scapegoating of black, Jewish, sort of minority groups and at certain points it's Catholics uh, at certain points it's Jewish certain it's called consistently Jewish and black but um, and the way in which this has these are threads so conspiracy uh, sorry uh, anti-elitism uh, conspiracism and uh, scapegoating and there's others as well but I'll just uh, I don't want to go through the whole book <laughs> um, but the way in which they trace these throughout history to look at movements which have these characteristics. And what you end up finding is some of them are extreme and very much intertwined with the mainstream, mm -hmm. sometimes on the fringe and sometimes actually in the mainstream. Mm -hmm. And as well as being an incredibly informative resource for these kind of, this kind of history. And I don't, I don't necessarily agree that all of them are equally described as populist, even though they all have these populist features that they identify. Um, but they, um, I mean, some are fascist, outright fascists, but I find it interesting that they found certain threads which tie the mainstream and the extreme together, but allow for divergences and convergences. And at some points, 
the far right is not only the fringe, but oppositional to the mainstream, like in the post civil rights era that I speak, that I write about. And sometimes they're deeply intertwined and sometimes they're the street soldiers for that. And I find that really interesting. I mean, it really, it really throws, um, and I think Daniels does this as well. It really throws a wrench at this idea that this presentist approach that says terrorists are outside the mainstream, extremists are outside the mainstream, um, and shows how these things are very contingent. It's not just how we define terrorism or extremism, mm. but actually the historical forces that go into actually allowing them to be that, mm. um, which is, I think, where... Yeah, so and and that's something I'm very interested in. Yeah, and as you said, that does feed into to Chalmers' piece, Backfire, how the Ku Klux Klan helped the civil rights movement. Um, in what way, what, what was it specifically in this focus on uh, the Ku Klux Klan what do, that you drew from it, that, uh, from Chalmers' piece? What, what, what can this teach us when analyzing this organization? Yeah, that, I mean, that's, I mean, I, I would also, I would just say that the Chalmers book, I had a real debate about this because mm. he also wrote the book Hooded, Hooded Americanism, mm -hmm. um, which is like my favorite histories of the Klan. Um, but I chose this because it, it, it makes a very specific argument about the relationship between violence, racism, and historical change, which I think lends itself to a discussion about terrorism. Yeah. Um, I mean, so basically his argument is that, that the Klan helped. Um, and, and I have to say this, his argument, I, I take part of it informs the, uh, the piece I wrote, the Klan is history that we're going to discuss after. So I will, I will, I'll, I'll sort of be careful with what I say at this point. Um, but they, he looks at the way in which, um, white supremacy had been so linked up between the establishment and the Klan. Mm -hmm. I mean, the Klan were also largely the counselors the, on the council, the business, the businessmen, the police, mm. um, and the way in which their violence and the public and national, it's important, national notoriety as well as Southern notoriety really helped delegitimize them, but also was tainting um, the defense of segregation, the opposition to civil rights and, uh, and eventually voting rights. And so what, what, what he looks at is the way in which their violence gave the, the, gave the federal government the ability to call in the FBI mm -hmm. and try to root out the Klan. Um, I have a wider critique of that process and that era that I discuss in, in the Klan is history. But I thought it was really interesting the way in which he describes historical processes where violence and racism actually become separated. Okay. The mainstream and the extreme become separated or the extreme gets actually constructed. Okay. So what we find is at the end of each era of the Klan that their violence becomes a problem to reconciliation and redemption. So reconstruction of the South, for example, mm -hmm. and that actually in order to save the social fabric, you have to demonize the Klan mm -hmm. because you can't demonize all racists because that's the social fabric mm -hmm. effectively. 
And so making some, some are, and it pardoned the, the sort of, it's not intended as a pun, but beyond the pale, mm. uh, which I think is an apt kind of, um, yeah, the, um, and, and it's violence that becomes the problem. Violence which threatens the law. Okay. And I look at that in terms of, and I think I've, I might have said this to you before, but my interest is not what causes terrorism or how to stop it, mm. but what is done with it. Mm-hmm. How, how it is, how it functions in society, how it is utilized mm-hmm. by various parties. And um, for the state, in this, in this case, terrorism became the thing that you could delegitimize and compartmentalize bad racism. And was there any, any specific form of violence, um, any specific type of violent act that was, to use the phrase that you use, that was seen as beyond the pale? Or was it becoming, was it more about the timing and the overall social, social, um, the social issues going on at the time? It's a really important question. I mean, I think it's, it's, it's all of these things. Mm. But I think at different eras, it's different, yeah. different orders, different sort of hierarchy of them. I mean, in, in Reconstruction in the 19, late 19, 1860s or 1870s, um, the, the issue was night riding, intimidation, cross burning that was um, interfering with the sort of the Reconstruction mm-hmm. as it was more generalized um, violence and intimidation. Mm. Although, you know, terrorism, you know, arson, attacking people, lynching, mm-hmm. uh, lynching was a huge one. Um, 1960s come along and when civil rights is being, um, being pushed and being called for, um, you had in 19, 1963 and 1964 to 1965, you had a, a wave of very high profiling clan attacks mm. i mean you had the murder of medgar evers yeah. you had the bombing of the 16th street baptist church you had the murders of the three civil rights workers mm-hmm. uh by not only the clan but the sheriff's department mm-hmm. um and this the last one um was what led to the call to have Hoover mobilize COINTELPRO, um, who had been fighting communists and civil rights workers. In fact, civil rights organizations that complained about, this is what Chalmers argues, civil rights organizations that complained about the Klan got investigated for communism by COINTELPRO. COINTELPRO then, which was 1956, 1964, I think it's 63, 64, 64, it moves into um, the South uh, focusing on the Klan. Mm-hmm. And it, it was attempting to disrupt mm-hmm. and delegitimize the Klan. Um, and it was, it was these, these murders and these attacks that led to this. Um, 1965, uh, Viola Liuza, a, a voting rights activist, gets murdered. And the president uh, calls in House, House and American Activities who again had been investigating communists to investigate the Klan. And this is where we have the, uh, the, the hearings, uh, the activities of the, of the Ku Klux Klan and the, the report, uh, the present day Ku Klux Klan. Um, 
that called the, the organization both terrorists and un-American and attempting to sort of both delegitimize them, disentangle them from the mainstream, but also take away their license to call themselves the representatives of America. Mm -hmm. And I think this is quite very important. It's not just the violence. It's the, the entanglement yeah. that the violence allows for. Yeah, if you only look at the violence, you're only getting one aspect of it. You're not, you're not getting the full picture then. No, and, and, and we know, this is something I wrote about again in the Klan's history, but the, the way in which at each successive era, the, the Klan or various far-right organizations are rooted out on the basis of either violence or sedition, mm -hmm. rarely racism. And this is really acute in the, uh, I mean, we know racism didn't end. But we also know the defeat of this also feeds the post-race argument. Mm -hmm. The idea we defeated racism because racism only and always wears a white hood and burns a cross. But if you look under the fascist era, um, I mean, you had, uh, you know, as well as Fred Trump, <laughs> you had, uh, you know, hundreds of thousands of others of American fascists who were marching, uh, 1939, massive event at Madison Square Gardens. And the government goes after them for sedition because mm -hmm. uh, they were also isolate, non-interventionists. Um, and they, um, overlapping with Lindbergh and other, other high-profile people. Mm -hmm. But the government goes after them for sedition. And what's interesting about that is they're not fighting their nativism and their racism and their anti-Semitism. Because the, the, the laws they use to ban, to, to either ban or prosecute fascists are largely a, immigrant alien mm -hmm. um, laws. So they're xenophobic laws to begin with. And then they start locking up and interning Japanese people. So in no, in no way was the fight against fascism a fight against racism. Mm -hmm. It was a fight against foreign sedition or foreign ideologies so you've been teasing listeners with this already you will move on to the the clan is history piece the base that you wrote in in our recent book historical perspectives on organized crime and terrorism available in all good bookshops now uh, go and buy yourself a number of copies uh, get us 50p or whatever we'll get from it all <laughs> what what was why did you choose this topic and what exactly um are you putting forward in in this chapter but also before we do that, could you actually no answer that bit first? What what was uh, what were you trying to achieve with this chapter? Um, Not just trying, you succeeded. Possibly too much. <laughs> <All right. laughs> um, I had uh, I had uh, discussions with uh, one of my editors about it, <laughs> my fellow editors about it. Um, in a sense, I've been since doing my PhD. Right. I, I've been very interested in this idea about what extremism is. Mm. And I spent a lot of time reading um, about, you know, extremism has these characteristics in a taxonomy. Um, extremism is groups that show, or, or, you know, uh, have these characteristics mm -hmm. or threaten liberal democracy, et cetera, et cetera. And oftentimes this idea of extremism was groups that were already in the democratic system mm -hmm. um, or fringe groups. But I always felt that these kind of definitions were both ahistorical in the sense that they were taxonomies that collected material. They were almost haunted houses of the entire history of politics and social movements. At the same time, what was extremist in one era is non-extremist in another. 
And, you know, I, it always occurred to me that the Ku Klux Klan, which in, in the American imagination, were the symbols of extremism. And at the time I was writing, they were still that. Um, and they are, they were, they were again up until recently. <laughs> um, but I was w looking at, I couldn't, I couldn't reconcile this idea that they were so intertwined with the mainstream, going back to the Chalmers work. And how you, how you understand that what I refer to in my pitch is becoming extreme. Mm -hmm. That these groups, the, 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 they became extreme because they were so social political developments, social political and legal forces um, contributed to that. This is the FBI stuff that I was referring to before. And so what I wanted to do was I wanted to look at the way in which the Ku Klux Klan, and I do talk about other groups in that, um, who in the wake of the prosecutions and the hearings in the 1960s and civil rights and voting rights sort of went to the margins. They went sort of, they went off to the, they went off to the, the, the wilderness, if you will. Um, and what emerged in their wake were a bunch of paramilitary Nazified organizations like Christian identity groups, like Aryan nations, white Aryan resistance, national alliance. And these were truly extreme groups. Yet what had gotten all the attention all along was David Duke running for office. And I've always maintained that David Duke was one guy running for office, although I think he's revealed what, how fascist he actually is. Um, and what people were ignoring was these, these people stockpiling supplies for the race war in, in Idaho, Montana, you know, Washington State, etc. And so I was looking at the way in which a mainstream far right was virtually excommunicated and rendered historical and their past rewritten as historical, but at the same time, that process led to a radicalization, if you will. Okay. And so I wanted to unpick the processes that were involved in that. So in this one, I look at the way in which at each possible era, the far right emerges, um, is intimately tied to, up until the fifth era, the post-civil rights era, defending the laws, practices, structures, and institutions of the time, and then became an inconvenience and were rendered extreme, were, were excommunicated or, or marginalized and delegitimized. Not that they weren't do that, not that that was wrong to do that, um, but it let the mainstream off the hook a bit and created a false historical narrative. So I wanted to sort of recover that narrative. But I was also found it really interesting that, and this is, comes from being in a criminology department, working with criminologists and terrorists, terrorism specialists, that... Thank God you changed that to terrorism specialists. You said terrorists, first of all. You're not working with terrorists. No, no. <laughs> <laughs> um, I was actually going to taste terrorist studies. Oh, okay. Terrorism <laughs> studies. Um, but uh, the, uh, the, the, the way in which cr the, the law enforcement were brought in to, 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 to do that... Mm -hmm and terrorism was the main issue. So I thought that was really interesting. Now, the other thing I was trying to do was I was trying to look at how that, that clan in the historical imagination was central to the construction of the myth of the post-racial that accompanied Obama's election. Okay. And you see images of, of when Obama became elected of like of Klansmen, as if that was the bad old days of racism, ignoring 
structural ongoing racism, but also even the continuity and the reemergence of the far right. So I dealt with this history as a way of also talking about compartmentalizing history and attempting to explain how the post-racial was constructed and how Trump, the revival of the far right under Trump, actually reconciled the two, two narratives of the far right and the two sides, the mainstream mm -hmm. seeking and having representation in power and being paramilitary, insurgent and violent. And so it was, it was about that. And I should add just another book that I, I left out only because it isn't specifically about the far right, but uh, Eduardo Benilla Silva's uh, White Supremacy and Racism in the Post-Civil Rights Era and Racism Without Racists. These two books look at the way in which the far right had been so tied to the, the post-racial imagination, but also how that allowed America to sort of... Um, not have to take responsibility or acknowledge ongoing racism. Mm -hmm. And I think that that kind of thing um, is really important if you're going to understand the sort of the the waves of, of the far right, mm -hmm. but also how they sometimes intersect and sometimes diverge from the mainstream. And it's and you've mentioned uh, Trump a few times, you mentioned Brexit a few times. Um, within American now, and if we look at the far right, not just the Klan, but the far right yeah. as a whole, um, what does their activity look like at the moment outside of the mainstream? But that, yeah, the, those far right groups there, what does their activity look like at the moment, and has it changed um, under Trump? Uh, and has have we seen a change in the membership as well? Yeah, I mean, I think I'm in this country. Um, you do have an ongoing, um, I do think the far right has more media presence and platforms than they've had in a long time. Mm -hmm. But what is, what is continuous is street protest. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a, that's something you have here that doesn't really exist as much in America. Mm -hmm. Um, you have marches in America, but not sort of more, um, regular street protests. Uh, but you also have something that's overlapping here and there, which is um, mobilization on, on university campuses. Mm. Here, you'd have someone like National Action putting up flyers and stirring up things. In, in America, you've, you have both that, but you also have actual alt-right campus campaigns mm -hmm. under the auspices largely of white identity, uh, anti-feminism, and free speech. Okay. Um, but I think in, in, in America, the... Um, I don't know. I mean, it, it depends what organization and movement because the, the, the class component, the regional kind of character changes. Mm -hmm. Like, the, you know, the far right is traditionally a, seen as a, as a southern movement. In the 1980s, 70s, 80s, and 90s, it moved up to the Pacific Northwest. Um, you're starting to see it much more in urban areas and across the country now mm -hmm. with the mainstreaming. Mm -hmm. um, you're getting a lot more college college kids, um, you're having a revival, um, this isn't my research area, but like of uh, sort of high profile uh, female far right activists, um, which uh, has been written about by another book that I couldn't add, Kathleen Blee's work, mm -hmm. which is uh, fantastic. Um, um, 
ages. Um, I think I think you're seeing younger. I think they're younger. I think this is you're seeing an age de a demographic um, more akin to the skinhead movement mm. than you would of the Aryan nations and all these organizations that really had a lot of these people were um, adult laborers um, and Vietnam vets. Mm -hmm. um, so uh, it's not to say you don't have veterans in this one, but I think the, I think the demographic, I think the age is lower. <laughs> the age is lower. And how about the violence? Is the violence, what way has the violence changed or has it changed? Well, this is something I dealt with in my PhD and in the clan's mm -hmm. history. I mean, it's interesting because in a sense, the far right in the, in the 1980s and 90s is seen as really, really violent, mm. culminating in the Oklahoma City bombing. But, you know, the amount of lynchings and church bombings um, in the earlier eras, in the civil rights era and in the Reconstruction era, are incredibly higher. Mm. But I think that, in fact, violence became so normalized in these periods, with the exception of high-profile ones that mm. led to action, that actually, and there's, a, there's also a distraction because, in a sense, the clan of that era, those eras were incredibly violent. Their violence was joined, particularly in the 1950s and 60s, with police violence mm. against civil rights and voting rights protesters, people who crossed the color line. Um, but at the same time, you had people running for office and enjoying the privileges of, of respectable society. So in fact, it, it doesn't, the violence is so mixed up with everything else that people often think the 80s were more violent because it was just violence. Okay. Yeah. And one of the things I, I've, I've said before in, in sort of interviews and writing is, is that you have in the 1980s, 1990s, if you're a person who belongs to one of their target groups walking by one of their compounds, it's extremely, extremely dangerous. But these groups don't run the or aren't involved in the police, legislatures, etc., that have the power of both street-level violence um, and symbolic violence of, of the law to deprive people of their, of their lives. So move, moving on from that, you've got... We move on then to your... The earliest piece that you've chosen, My Enemies Must Be Friends, the American, uh, the American Extreme Right Conspiracy Theory, Islam and the Middle East. This is in Conspiracy Theories in the Middle East and the United States, a comparative approach. What, what's, this, what's this piece about um, and what do, we, what do we learn from this? Um. Well, <laughs> um, I, do you mind if I just want to add one other thing about the clan's history? Oh, Sorry. go for Sorry. it. Go for it. Yeah. Another thing that was really important that I left out was actually a sort of something which was context produced. Mm. The point of actually also detailing that history of the clan mm. and its violence and its intersection with the mainstream was also a way of attempting to challenge this conflation of Islam and Muslims with terrorism. Okay. And, and, uh, something which um, the writing of Christopher Hewitt helped as well. Uh, but to, 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 to look at how endemic terrorism was to American society mm. and history. Okay, sorry, going back to the other one. No. Yeah, the, uh, <laughs> the uh, uh, my enemies must be friends. That's obviously a play on um, my enemy's enemy is my friend. And that was a response largely to something which developed, particularly around neoconservative 
analysts. This idea at a certain point that the far right and whatever they were called jihadists or Islamists mm -hmm. uh, were in league together. Okay. And that was in a sense that there was either a convergence or there was an actual alliance between them. I was very suspicious of this, of this theory and this approach and something that I continue to be because I think in some ways I, I kind of foresaw the development of that reciprocal extremism argument or the horseshoe theory, the two sides of the same coin argument. What bothered me about that was there's this idea that you had a lot of people who were working on ex ex extreme right mm -hmm. in the 1980s and 90s. And something else happened, just like I was reaching that 9-11 happens and everyone forgets. Mm -hmm. You've got a wealth to offer the world of terrorism and extremism studies. And it was helped by the fact that a lot of far-right groups were, and, and this is another thing, counter to what was occurring in Europe with far-right mobilizing against Muslim communities or whatever they call jihadist terrorism. So you had that weird thing that occurred where it's like, extremist against extremism. Mm -hmm. So uh, I, uh, in America, you at the far right attempted to sort of jump, jump on the bandwagon. And so you had groups like Aryan Nations calling out, assigning an, a minister of Islam and asking for Aryan martyrs to join Al-Qaeda. Um, and I thought that was really fascinating. And if you look at a lot of the arguments that said there was actually an alliance, they identified two things. One is Hitler and the Grand Mufti of Jerusalem. Uh, and that there, oh, three things, sorry, that. Uh, George Lincoln Rockwell of the American Nazi Party and Nation of Islam. Mm -hmm. And um, the fact that both don't like Israel oh, and um, both are violent. So that's four things, yeah. So, um, I was looking at this and I decided to sort of say, okay, let's go back to this Hitler Grand Mufti idea uh, argument and let's look back and reconstruct that history to say, is there a line there? Is there a history there? Because what I'm seeing at the present is the far right who no one's paying attention to post Oklahoma mm -hmm. and post the failure for there to be a sort of race war at the millennium, um, which was predicted by a lot of uh, sort of security experts and... Um, scholars and journalists, but like all I saw was the far right going, can we join you? Can we join you? But I never heard anything back. Mm -hmm. It was unidirectional. So I looked back historically and I looked at, there was a pattern there that at each era, when the domestic scene, domestic race scene declined. So, um, you know, just after the nativist period, mm or after, the, after Jim Crow in the civil rights era, there was uh, the far right attempted to mobilize by looking outward and they looked internationally. And what happened after the founding of Israel, or establishment of Israel, is that there was this idea of a Jewish nation that put their anti-Semitism on a geopolitical level as well, that it hadn't quite been previously. Aside from sort of like earlier um, notions of sort of Hitler could stop the Jewish conspiracy or then Stalin could. But that seeped over into an interest in the Cold War theater of the Middle East. And so they started making calls to join these groups or to sort of like to network with these groups. And you started to see more than any kind of formal relationships 
what you started to see is the Middle East and Arabs at the time, because um, there was a more sort of, uh, the discourse moved from Arabs to Muslims, as I think it did in general, uh, with racist and what we now, you know, Islamophobes. But um, the, a lot of it was much more that these people in these places figured in a far-right conspiracy theories. And so what I was arguing was, in a sense, after a period of, of mobilization and height with the period of nativism or, or civil rights, the far right was seeking to kind of be more significant. And I was arguing, this is the conspiracy theory, that the conspiracy theory allowed themselves to narrate and insert themselves in some geopolitical battle that they really weren't part of. Mm. And so I was looking at that and I was trying to look at that history and try to see where actually this relationship or convergence occurred. And I do, I, I, I honestly believe that convergence is much more in the conspiracy theories of the analysts. Mm -hmm. And it really, I found it was an interesting experience trying to write something on conspiracy theories when the accusations or the, the theories of, a, of an alliance were themselves conspiratorial. Mm -hmm. um, and I then, um, yeah, so I, I, th that's what I was focusing on. And I, and I think now we're seeing something similar with this idea of reciprocal extremism. I keep on reading about how um, the far right and radicalism, whatever the term is being used now, um, they're, I think they're all quite awful, um, are feeding each other. And I don't believe that's true. I think almost every, almost of the work you read about this says that the far right is being fed in response, mm -hmm. but the, the sort of the so-called Islamist side is not responding to the far right. Mm -hmm. And it's, again, it's still unidirectional. Okay. So uh, I, I, um, Oh, and the other thing is something I've, I've, I've written on more recently is I don't like the kind of two sides of the same coin, the equivalent, such as that which was drawn by Theresa May following the Finsbury Park attack. The idea that when she said we have to treat all extremisms the same and we have to fight extremism, which includes Islamophobia, like we fought racism, I find these kind of equivalences are very sort of functional and convenient because in a sense, you know, you don't see you know, so-called Islamists appearing on ITV this morning in Britain. You don't see, um, you don't see a member of, you know, ISIS walking, running to London Bridge after an attack and being interviewed by Sky News. You know, they don't have a platform either in the media or in the state. You know, um, we, we've just, we're, we're currently engaged in a discussion about the, the real hostile environment, which has been fed a lot by Islamophobia. And so the idea that these are equivalent, the other issue being is, is that Theresa May, the idea that she could call Islamophobia a form of extremism when the media in this country and, and political parties have been stirring it up and legitimizing it, uh, but also the fact that she says we should fight it like we fought racism as if racism was been defeated. And I think the, the recent, with the Windrush example is a really good example as well as the post-Brexit hate crime, which I've worked on as well. I mean, yeah, I, I think these are false equivalences. And I think we need to, and I guess this is where we come in as scholars. I think we need to, to address, understand and address things based on an analysis of them themselves and stop trying to kind of construct convenient yeah. equivalences. And Well, it, 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 reminds, it reminds me of, and I'm sure a number of our listeners, and it's not the exact same, but I'm sure it's come to people's minds of, Trump's reaction to Charlottesville, like, yeah. yeah, on all sides. 
Absolutely. And actually, it's really interesting because I was doing, I was looking at this um, in terms of the Greensboro Massacre. Yeah. And, and which, which led to the Fifth Era. And it was sort of the Klans and, and American Nazi Party taking on sort of, you know, Communist Party members and textile workers. And uh, Communist Party members died. And the reports were like far left clan shootout leaves people dead as if there was like two groups doing this. It wasn't the Communist Party, it was a communist organization. But, um, but yeah, this construction of equivalence. And that reminds me actually of um, Theresa May's uh, response to, uh, to uh, Trump tweeting Britain first. And I was like, it was funny because I was quite happy that she condemned it. Mm. But I was really kind of puzzled by why Britain First matters or is worse than her sending out go-home vans or him trying to ban, have a Muslim ban. The idea of like, what's the real threat in society? And I think this is why my focus, even my focus on terrorism, is about racism. Mm-hmm. And it's about inequality. Because I think we need to highlight these impacts of not only the violence, but even the the responses to the violence yeah. and and throughout throughout the discussion and in today's podcast and you can see this throughout, throughout your work uh, your current work as a whole there is a focus at the moment and understandably so on islamophobia yeah and you uh along with your your co-author orlean mundan um wrote the piece articulations of islamophobia from the extreme to the mainstream in ethnic and racial studies review uh, back in 2017 and in this you talk about it you talk about liberal and illiberal uh, manifestations of yeah. Islamophobia what's the differentiation there and what why was it important to point this out well it, it's um this is part of a wider project we're working on we're currently working on a book called reactionary democracy uh populist hype liberal and illiberal racisms, the far right and the lack of political imagination. Another title. one of my, wa- <laughs> mine are, that's <laughs> sure who's responsible for the really long title. Um, as well as several other, we, we wrote a piece in response to Charlie, the, Charlie Hebdo. Um, and you draw on Charlie Hebdo here. Yes, yes, well. yes. Um, and um, we've written on free speech debates and all this many other issues. Um, yeah, I, going back to the sort of the Eduardo Brunello Silva, like the idea that we live in a post-race era is predicated on this idea that only fa- extreme manifestations mm-hmm. of intolerance and hate are racism. And that's largely, largely been a way of distracting from what are on more complex and more difficult institutional, structural, and everyday racisms. Mm-hmm. Um, and so... We, we wrote this piece um, after many, many discussions and through many discussions and, and um, about the way in which we've seen recently, I guess there's two things we're doing. One is we've seen recently the articulation of a liberal Islamophobia, which is an Islamophobia that not only ties itself to liberal values, some might even call them fundamental British values, um, uh, and actively distance itself from the historical stereotypes of the far right, mm-hmm. who, whose illiberalism, biological racism, colorism, um, or color-coded racism, sorry, um, 
are, are seen as no longer acceptable, not only in a post-race, but in a modern era. And they're, they target Muslims for not having the values of modern liberal societies about gender rights, free speech, democracy versus dictatorship or theocracy, um, uh, LGBT rights. Um, and by focusing on not only these, but Muslims as opposed to black or Asian people, there's a way of getting around and away from racism or plausible deniability. Now, what we found interesting about this is that its active attempt to denounce, deny, and dis distance itself from the illiberal forms. Now, we see this all the time. I mean, we see this with, you know, the, um, you know, EDL's sort of LGBT division or attempt to recruit Sikhs. Or we see this with, for example, um, during, the, during the Brexit referendum, Nigel Farage basically claimed to have defeated the far right. Um, I defeated those who, you know, who, who hate Jews and hate black people. He doesn't include Muslims in this. But, and, and he's, the, this is the new face of legitimate arguments about the society we live in. And there's an attempt to distance yourself from issues that are, are linked to racism or, or signifiers of racism. And what we looked at is we looked at the way in which these were constructed in France and America. We're also working a little bit on, on Britain as well for the book. And Aurelien is the expert on France. Um, and um, I, we, we looked at the way in which it is constructed, but the way in which it also helps normalize in suspicion and intolerance. Um, and on top of that, the way in which it, it's rarely predicated on a unconditional support for feminism, for LGBT rights, or for free speech. And so we see this, mo one of the great examples of this is Bill Maher. Yeah. Um, and the way in which he has used, he attacks Islam, not Muslims. So it makes this distinction, right? And um, one of the other post-race things we, we, we look at is the way in which um, Islam is constructed as a religion as opposed to a race or a people. Mm -hmm. uh, suspiciously, when, with, with Islamophobic attacks, that it's always people that get attacked. Um, you know, just pure coincidence. Um, so what, what ends up happening is, is that they do this, they undercut it. Um, their commitment to these issues like free speech or gender rights or LGBT rights are usually on, always and only linked to criticism of Muslims. Or for Bill Maher, criticism also of Christian fundamentalism for a time, but that was mostly under Bush. Um, now, what we've, what one of the reasons we're looking at this is, is that it, I guess there's three things. One is we're looking, we're making an argument that there's different articulations of Islamophobia because we found it in the literature. It's either one thing or another. It's it's a racialization or it's religion. Uh, and we argue that actually um, we do believe it's racialization, but the focus on the religious aspect and the liberal values is an active attempt to deny that. So there's the articulations issue. Um, we also argue these are not oppositional. They, they feed each other because in a sense, what we've seen is unlike in 
in Europe where the far right has been pushing the anti anti Muslim anti Islam argument, which um, with the with the mainstream in the in America the far right as I said before talking about uh, sort of my enemies uh, piece, um, the far right has been sort of like pro ISIS pro Al Qaeda, um, that uh, or particularly in that era Al Qaeda. Um, the normalization of, of Islamophobia, I think, came through the liberals. And it became more and more acceptable. Um, but we also argue that that normalization and mainstreaming isn't itself liberal. Because what ends up happening is, in defense of Charlie Hebdo and liberal free speech, illiberal security measures, an increase in illiberal hate crimes an increase in illiberal far-right marches. And so what ends up happening is, is that we argue the liberal softens the ground for it and normalizes in mainstream. And so why we call it, why we call it, there's many reasons, but why we call the book uh, Reactionary Democracy is we, we look at the ways in which the old-fashioned far-right, no longer acceptable, has been rebranded and has, has been allowed also back in and emboldened by these, these liberal and populist, more, more mainstream acceptable discourses. Uh, you know, the people feel, the people say, you know, liberal values. And um, so that, I guess that's what we're sort of arguing. And, and we have the two case studies in that. And at the moment, you, you mentioned uh, the case of, of Windrush. Mm. Um, but at the time of recording as well, here within the UK, um, there's ongoing debate and protest surrounding anti-Semitism within yeah. the, the Labour Party. Um, how do you see a similar process that, do you see similar background to that as you do within the liberal Islamophobia as well? Or is there something else going on? There? Yeah, I mean, I think that's, I, I don't want to sort of, I've tended not to try to kind of create links, sort of yeah. links and, um, the sort of two sides of the same coin. Yeah. Uh, I, I was at a talk once and someone was trying to explain that sort of uh, in Greece, you know, Golden Dawn and Syriza were two sides of the same coin, which I found just absolutely shocking yeah. considering one is left-wing populist and the other is neo-Nazi. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, you know, um, but do I think, I think in a sense, um, this is more about... Um, I guess two things. One, maybe the normalization of certain discourses, but it's the normalization of um, of a party and a movement um, very much detached from the mainstream establishment and elite, which is also part of the, the threat they're seen as posing. Um, but I also think the debate uh, about, about anti-Semitism is a debate about politics. And about who can lead and who should be, who's illegitimate. And who, it's not to say there's no, there's no anti-Semitism. But I think that, in a sense, even the issue is being sidelined within these, these kind of debates. And look, I mean, you had, you've got people on the, on the left saying, oh, look, everyone's focusing on anti-Semitism. What about Windrush? And so you've, you've got the Tories saying... You're only focusing on Windrush because you're not focusing on, on anti-Semitism. And I guess I guess my thought would be beyond any analysis of like the exact 
you know, what's really going on is that I'm very, very, um, it, it's, I'm very, I'm not, I'm very unhappy and upset with the fact that racism and the fight against racism is being reduced to look over there, look over there. It's a lot of what about They're worse. Yeah. yeah. What about ism? Absolutely. And, um, I've heard some argument, people saying like, you know, you know, why does no one focus on left-wing racism? Why does no one focus on right-wing racism? Mm. I, I think we need to focus on racism. Yeah. And I, I think that's, I mean, that's fundamental to my project. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, we can see it goes on. We can see it goes on, not just in the extremes. Mm-hmm. And I think that's, that's the fight we need to have. And I think that's, some, that's, that's inherent to not only the fight against extremism, far-right extremism, but it's also fundamental to the critique of counter-extremism and counter-terrorism policies that make uh, Muslims a suspect community and legitimize the far right. And that link is something which very troubles me and I really want to sort of unpack and, and deal with. Yeah, and is that where your, your research is moving on uh, from here then? Uh, yeah, well, I mean, m- me and Aurelian have the big project yeah. and we, well, I think we actually have another piece coming out on liberal and Islam liberalism liberal and illiberal Islamophobia and um, another piece on sort of whiteness, populism and, and racism. Um, but I'm, I'm also doing some stuff on counterterrorism, And um, one of them is coming out with in Andrew Silk's uh, handbook mm-hmm. on the history of um, history of American counterterrorism, yeah. uh, pre nine 11. Mm-hmm. And in that one, I was quite interested in the way in which um, like I said before, the, the FBI was used against civil rights workers and communists brought in to fight the Klan, get rid of racism in the form of the Klan, but as violence, and then moved on to fight sort of anti-war protesters and the Weather Underground and then um, the Black Panthers. <laughs> and what we have is something similar now where um, I think, isn't it, that Trump's sort of the countering violent extremism is now being renamed countering Islamist violent extremism yeah. or violent Islamist extremism and the two main targets of the um, of the uh, of the FBI now are what are called those with an Antifa-like ideology like the idea that anti-fascism is the problem um, but um, and it's funny because America is a country which, which fighting fascism in World War II is part of its identity mm. um, similar here but um and then black identity extremists. They're going after people who are protesting neo-Nazis and people are protesting police violence. And I find that, into, that, that, that use of counter-extremism, counter-terrorism, counter-subversion really fascinating. And what I didn't mention before is Chip Brule and Matt Ly- Matthew Lyon's book. One of the reasons I, I selected it was because um, they both written on the history of counter-intelligence, counter-subversion work. Um, and the repression of political movements, which is only sometimes used against the far right, but more often not against the left mm-hmm. and against anti-racist organizations. And the other reason being is that Chips is sort of lifelong, lifelong investigative journalist and activist. And um, that also informs my work and my, my link, you know, it's, it's a politics that I, I could never live up to what he's done, mm-hmm. but I, I share a belief in. Um, but the... Uh, yeah, the idea that the that the 
Trump administration is using state security to fight those who protest state law enforcement. <laughs> um, if you know anything about the history that I, I discussed or Chalmers discussed well before me um, and in much greater detail, the, inter, the, the overlap of the police, the Klan, racist institutions and structures, it, I know we're not back into that Jim Crow era, but we're into a very dangerous period where these things need to be unta untangled. Yeah. And yeah, it's, it's something that, that's, uh, that we've just been watching for the past couple of years and, and obviously beforehand as well, but it's become highlighted over the past couple mm. of years yeah. with, uh, with the, that 2016 election. Actually, going back to the piece, Articulations of Islamophobia, one of the, when you're especially talking about liberal uh, Islamophobia, one of the things that's often pushed back at you uh, mm. through these criticisms as well is, well, we have to be able to, to criticise a religion. We have to be able to, to criticise uh, what these religions stand for and stand up for, uh, stand up for rights, etc. Yeah. Et what would your reaction to a reaction like that be? Uh, I mean, the first one would be sort of, who, what other religion are you talking about? Yeah because we're talking about a specific community. Mm -hmm. um, the other thing is, um, I always find this, yeah, this, this, we need, we need to be able to criticize. Um, are you, I mean, are you criticizing or are you, are you reaffirming prejudices? Mm -hmm. um, but the other, the other issue is, is that who, you know, what, what exactly are you banning? Mm -hmm. What exactly are you repressing? So, are you saying this liberal value, you're going to liberate all women from wearing headscarves? You're effectively saying in the name of some sort of, you know, what was claimed to be a feminism, is you're going to deprive women the right and you're going to step in there and save them. Now, it's interesting that what ends up happening is, is this suspicion of women wearing headscarves gets rearticulated and rearticulated and reaffirmed and reaffirmed. And who is disproportionately attacked? in the wake of terrorist attacks. It's women yeah. wearing head coverings. And I mean, um, there's been some great work written about this. Um, Naj Rashid's written about it. Irene Zempi's written about it. Some really good stuff. Um, it's really, really, um, it, that one always, always takes me back to this idea that there, this is the reaffirming of either a secular Christian and patriarchal mm -hmm. kind of values and structures. Um, but we criticize a religion. I mean, um, we criticize lots of things. Um, is your target always the same? So for example, we, we, we me and Aurelian have written about the free speech issue and people say, we, we need to explore these ideas. We need to discuss these ideas. We need to have free speech. So, uh, you know, the Joe Johnson, when he's been university's minister, we need more free speech on campus. People shouldn't be afraid to say whatever they want. Prevent was not included in that. There was no, there was no, there was no, there was no way in which pre what prevented was necessary, so it was exempt from the pre-speech argument. What was being attacked? Anti-racism, feminism, LGBT rights. Um, you go into free speech debates, and the debate we're going to have is about Mein Kampf. It's about who, 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 who are we going to invite to our platform? Well, Nick Griffin. It's a far right activist, and what. What you find consistently is there's a certain strand or strain in this liberal 
this, this, these kind of liberal arguments, which the only people they want to attack are the targets of the far right, and the only people they want to put up on a pedestal are the far right, or those that share those kind of ideas. You know, Milo Yiannopoulos, for example. And this leads me to suspect <laughs> that liberalism is an excuse, and the targets are well, well, are very clear. And is this, so you use the US and France as examples in, the, in this piece. Are we seeing this worldwide or? I, I can't really speak to worldwide. I mean, we're definitely seeing it in uh, Europe, mm-hmm. um, France, Britain. Um, uh, we've seen it for a while in, in, in the Netherlands, Canada, my, uh, the country I grew up in mm-hmm. with her. Rebel Media and Jordan Peterson and uh, Dad Sad and Laura Southern and a whole bunch of others. Yeah, it, it's being the free speech argument is coming from into the defense of the far right, mm-hmm. I think. And in some ways, it's not far. It may not be always be far right itself. It might actually be the kind of the, the, the gateway drug, mm-hmm. if you will, the uh, the, the, the bit of anti-feminism, the bit of saying, well, hang on, that group is pushing it too far or they're a threat to our nation because of their values mm-hmm. and the people that get attacked are those groups. And, you know, it's interesting because we just had the, 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 the Toronto van attack, mm-hmm. which was, um, uh, looks like it's linked to sort of men's rights, misogynist incel movement, uh, sort of entanglements. And a lot of this is what's being not necessarily, you know, neo-Nazi organization, but like the stirring up of grievance as if those people are not allowing us to be free. Mm-hmm. And that's where the liberalism is. It's a sort of the sort of uh, negative liberty taken to the extreme. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I realize we've gone on a bit longer than most, the most episodes, but it's just it's always fascinating to talk to you about your about your research, about about um, about your how that has informed uh, our views on uh, on what's going on at the moment, nationally and internationally. And as we've seen, like your research, unlike a lot of the guests here, it isn't focused on terrorism. Terrorism is touched on as a result of the of the focus of your, of your research. But you are aware of uh, of the terrorism literature as. As you said, you've got a piece com- upcoming in Andrew Silk's uh, Handbook on Terrorism. So y- you know the debates around whether there's a stagnation in terrorism research or not. From your analysis of this area of terrorism studies, do you feel that there is a stagnation or how do you feel there, the health of terrorism studies is? At the moment? Yeah, it's an interesting one because, I mean, look, I, I, I see what I do as, as terrorism research, mm-hmm. but I see myself as doing terrorism is part of the work on violence I do yeah. that is part of the wider research on, on racism I do. Yeah. So um, I, and I think the reason I don't focus or I don't identify myself as terrorism research specifically is because the way in which terrorism has been used historically mm-hmm. to distract from mainstream legal racism. I think that's, it's sort of, it's a, it's an analytical political distinction. Yeah. Um, but the, the, the health of it. Um, I think it's it's a really interesting uh, field because if you if you read Sageman's piece on stagnation, when I read it, I I think he doesn't. He's only talking to a very small group of people who work on problem solving 
policy oriented research. Mm -hmm. Because the, it, I mean, who he's describing, what he's describing, but also the problems that we're supposed to figure out. Now, if, if, if I've said anything in about my research, it should be that I, I do believe terrorism and extremism are historically contingent and changing and the responses to them produce other formations. Um, I would say that if you look at terrorism research as a broad base that occurs in both, you know, in history, in terrorism studies, proper security studies, sociology of violence, criminology, um, then it's a very diverse field. But I don't think these, these areas talk to each other. Mm -hmm. I think that I've, I've gotten the impression terrorism studies, people don't think that what people are doing, you know, say like research on the securitization of Muslims in sociology, race and racism might be focusing on terrorism, even though they're focusing on counterterrorism mm -hmm. research. And that group might think that terrorism studies is narrower than it is. Yeah. Okay. So, and I don't, I'm not saying there should be a dialogue because I think the political epistemological assumptions and orientations are so different. There might not be a possible possibility of a dialogue, but I would like to say in terms of, it's like, let's call it a radical democracy where you've got like very different things going on. But I do think it's really important that when, and maybe I'm saying this because this is my, where my work fits in. Cause I do feel in a sense, my job is to take, is to bring studies of racism and inequality to terrorism research mm -hmm. and to take terrorism research to sociology of race and racism. Um, I'm not the only one, <laughs> but um, that's why I kind of feel where I'm at the intersection of these two things. But I think it's, I think if we're not going to all have a dialogue, it's really important to read each other's work. If only to, um, to sort of like, to know what the, the broad field looks like yeah. and the title of the journal shouldn't have to have the word terrorism in it, okay. if that makes sense. Yeah. yeah. So I think it's vibrant in a whole bunch of different directions and silos. Mm -hmm. And on that note, if you do want to read Aaron's work, if you want to read it further, be sure to go onto the U onto the the Terrorism and Extremism Research Centre website, uel.ac.uk slash TERC, where there are links to all of the pieces that were discussed today, including the pieces that influenced Aaron's research. Um, Aaron, thank you so much for, for being a guest on today's episode of Talking Terror. We finally got you. It was worth it in the end. Definitely worth it. Be sure to tune in next week where, we're, where I am discussing the research of Julie Chernoff-Huang with, uh, with her about her research on disengagement uh, from Indonesian terrorism and some fascinating uh, field work she, that she has done. So until then, I'll chat you all soon. Bye.